I'm Lisa Fine, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. You are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. Check out Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network, and it posts every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also join in the conversation at the GWIC community on LinkedIn as well. In this episode, fan favorite and Morrison Enforcer partner, James Kukios, joins me to take a look at several issues which were discussed in the Morrison Enforcer International Anti-Corruption Newsletter from April. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, We are going to take up the firm's always great international anti-corruption newsletter. This episode will focus on the April newsletter of this year. And you had some some very interesting stories, James. I'd like to start with, we had the former CEO of Brascom uh, plead guilty to bribery schemes. Uh, Brascom, I think, pled out or at least settled with the Department of Justice back in uh, 2016. And uh, here we have nearly six years later, we have the prosecution of, of the former CEO. I found this uh, pretty significant uh, alone because the, the former CEO was prosecuted. But I was wondering um, maybe to ask you, when you see something like this, even if it is an outlier, even if it is an anomaly, is that the type of message that you can put forward to clients that, look, this this can happen under the right circumstances uh, and a, a message that clients should listen to? I think so, Tom. You know, I was brought up to the FCPA unit to really focus on individual prosecutions. I'd been a a prosecutor in Miami, and um, the FCPA unit had just finished the Siemens uh, resolution, and they really wanted to expand, you know, um, from not only doing big corporate cases, but also to bring individual cases as well. Uh, And I really focused a lot of my time in the six years I was in the fraud section on individual cases. And I started to think at the end, you know, I, I prosecuted a lot of individuals, but they tended to be smaller companies, um, you know, local companies based in the U.S. where we could we could get better evidence. You know, I did the Eskenazi case, the direct access partner case, um, and they were meaningful cases. And they showed that we were able to, to, to build cases against individuals and prosecute them. But I always, in the back of my mind, wondered, you know, does the CEO or the CFO or other top executive from, you know, a big company, you know, Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 company, does it matter that Joel Eskenazi got convicted? Does it matter that, you know, Benito Chinea from Dr. Access Partners pleaded guilty? Um, I just didn't know what it, what it, um, messages sent because those folks are both the CEOs and in many ways the salesmen themselves and they're out there to try to, 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 to trunk the business. And I think when you, in contrast, have a resolution like Jack Stanley or this month, uh, Jose Carlos, Carlos Grubasic from Braskem, you know, a really big international company and DOJ is able to go all the way up to the uh, C-suite and get somebody to plead guilty because of that, I think that does tend to send a message. You know, it's not just the small mom and pops that are getting in trouble individually. Um, there are actually big company CEOs that are getting in trouble um, and that DOJ and SEC are able to bring these cases. So I do think it does, it does send a message and a reminder that um, the department is able to do this 
And because of that, I think it sends the message, the deterrence message that that DOJ uh, and SEC always preach about individual prosecutions. Now, again, as you said, this tends to be kind of an outlier. Um, and so maybe the message is a little bit muted because of that. And people think, OK, well, you know, this is just an unusual one. Um, and we don't have to worry about this. But maybe not. I think that this is a, a, a continuing reminder that DOJ and SEC will follow through and try to build the case and roll people up until they get to the top and, and bring these cases. Uh, James, next up, we had a former Barbados official sentenced for money laundering bribe payments. And I really wanted to use this case to, to remind our audience that there's a wide arsenal of tools that the Department of Justice can use, uh, even if a Barbados official may not be subject to the FCPA. If the DOJ can get uh, a jurisdiction over him, uh, they can reach foreign officials who receive a bribe or facilitate corruption. And I was wondering if you might be able to expand upon that for a little bit. So just a, a little bit of fact here. On April 27th, DOJ announced that a gentleman named Donville Innes, who was a former member of parliament and minister of industry for international business, commerce, and small business development in Barbados, uh, had been sentenced to two years in prison. He had uh, previously been convicted by a jury in Brooklyn in January of 2020 uh, on several money laundering charges. Uh, basically, the theory was that he had received bribes from the Insurance Co Corporation of Barbados in exchange for renewing contracts from the Barbados government to ensure that um, to ensure government property worth over $100 million. Um, relatively small amount of bribes alleged, but still, as you said, DOJ was able to get jurisdiction over uh, Mr. Innes uh, and I think largely built a case in part through cooperation of that company, the insurance company, as well as um, their own investigation. Um, and as your listeners probably know, you can't bring FCPA charges against an official. You can, it's a, it's a supply side, not a demand side statute. You can only bring the charge, FCPA charges against a bribe payer, not a bribe receiver. However, as you said, there are many different tools that DOJ can use to get at these things. And one of them that they've used for many years, and I did it as well when I was an FCA prosecutor, was in the right case, DOJ will bring money laundering charges against the bribe receiver against the foreign official. They tend to be cases like this one where there is a lot of um, interaction with the United States and therefore there is an impact on the U.S. financial system. Um, they tend not to bring these cases when there's, you know, most of the bribery um, took place overseas and the money was uh, really didn't go through the U.S. system. So DOJ does tend to use its discretion to bring these cases where there's a, a impact on the U.S. financial um, system. But they'll bring money laundering cases alleging that foreign officials um, are laundering the proceeds of an FCPA violation, even though they can't bring the FCPA violation directly against uh, the official. The interesting thing, Tom, and I don't know if you've noticed this, um, but one of my observations for this year in particular is that DOJ is really using those money laundering charges against non-officials more and more. We would oftentimes bring those as companion charges, you know, when we prosecuted people like Joel Eskenazi, for example, um, we charged him with both FCPA violations and money laundering violations. But I've seen almost a preference in some cases where DOJ is using just money laundering charges um, to go against, for example, um, uh, professionals um, who are involved in a bribery scheme 
makes sense. They're probably the people who are laundering the money. Um, you know, and so that it would make sense, even though they're technically involved in the FCPA scheme, you know, maybe you want to focus on the money laundering, but it really does seem to me at least, and I'm curious if you have seen this, Tom, that DOJ is really expanding its use of the money laundering statutes in FCPA cases. I don't want to say for better or worse, but one of the biggest areas seems to be in uh, Latin America, Padavesa, Colombia, and several other uh, Central American countries where the officials, uh, for idiotic reasons known only to themselves, have submitted themselves to U.S. jurisdiction, either through coming here or, uh, to visit or moving here, but they've all engaged in money laundering. So we've had a lot of... Uh, uh, agreed sentences and uh, agreed sentences and sentencing uh, based upon those charges. And I think one day that those may form the basis of uh, really, I don't think people are watching those enough because they say, oh, it's Petavesa, just another Petavesa case. They're all corrupt. Well, uh, each individual case stands on its own facts and it stands for its own proposition as a precedent. So I think the DOJ is really creating quite a bit of precedent through what we probably do agree was a, a corrupt system. Uh, nevertheless, it will provide uh, that type of uh, relief uh, against foreign officials uh, as long as we're still under the legal scheme we are in the U.S. where it is strictly a supply-side law. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. And, and exa- that's exactly the cases I was thinking of, again, because um, so many of the folks from um, Ecuador and Venezuela travel to Miami or travel to Houston they have meetings, they spend the money, um, they buy property, they use bank accounts. And so there's jurisdiction to bring those cases. Um, well, I used to joke that you could probably bring about 90% of FCPA cases in Miami because people either go there um, to spend the money, they go there for a meeting, or they use the banks in Miami. Um, but that, that often does happen, especially Latin American cases or in Caribbean cases like this one. We'll be right back with more from James Kukios after this message. James, we had a former logistics company executive sentenced uh, for a scheme to bribe a Russian official, and we typically, or we rarely see uh, logistics company officials uh, involved in FCPA violations. Yet, I think that's one of the, the highest risk industries because literally everything a logistic company does is going to have a government touch point, whether it's getting products outside the United States. Uh, into a foreign country, and then through multiple checkpoints, they're probably going to be tax officials, customs officials, uh, certainly if it's on a ship, a port official. So there's lots of different touch points, and I've always been, um, frankly, relieved, but also very admiring of how the logistics industry really works with uh, a a wide variety of groups that uh, could get them into trouble. But I was wondering kind of what you've seen around logistics companies and international corruption. No, it's a great point. I mean, one of the first cases I worked on at, at DOJ was the Panalpina line of cases. And so there you had exactly what you said. There was the um, alleged bribery of customs officials and tax officials and many companies using Panalpina as a third party to help them do that. You know, oftentimes in, the, in those cases, for example, um, there would be a, a need to get a person or a thing into a country very quickly. They didn't have time or they didn't take the time to get the right visas or the right customs clearances. And so they would use the third party logistics agent 
to um, pay a bribe to the relevant officials to get those people or those products into a country. Um, some cases had even more elaborate bribery schemes using the logistics companies, um, trying to um, falsify documents that things had left the country um, uh, and then come back into it to avoid triggering some taxation issues. So absolutely what you said, uh, Tom, the customs agents, the port agents, um, the tax officials, logistics touches all those. This case is a little bit different, um, a, a different form of risk. This uh, involved the former co-president of a Maryland-based logistics agency um, who was uh, pled guilty and sentenced in April of 2021, that was when the sentencing was, for actually paying a bribe to get the business in the first place. Uh, this is kind of a specialized logistics company. Their specialty was um, hauling uh, uranium and, and nuclear components. And so the um, Darren Condry, the former co-president of this logistics agency, pled guilty in connection with allegedly paying bribes to a Russian official who was in charge of Russia's uh, state-owned or involved in um, Russia's state-owned uranium company to get those contracts to be able to actually deliver the uranium. So I think what you mentioned is the typical logistics um, risk. This is another one, which is actually paying bribes to get the business from a government customer, not just paying bribes at the ports and at, uh, of entry. So very, very interesting case. Uh, not a problem. Um, and for our final uh, story from the April newsletter, James, a former employee of a Swiss-based commodities firm pled guilty in connection with the Equatorian bribery scheme. What intrigued me about this, James, was we have now seen several cases involving commodities trading. Um, we've had a CFTC involvement in one case. Um, and when I looked at energy companies and their commodity trading operations back in the early sort of 2012 timeframe, uh, I thought that was highly rife for FCPA exposure because if you're in particularly energy commodities trading, every counterparty is uh, an instrumentality of a foreign government because they're all national oil companies. So whether you're buying, whether you're selling, whether you're trading, whether you're swapping, whether you're uh, buying on the spot market, whatever it may be, there's going to be a foreign government touch point. And now we've had a couple of these commodities trading cases. And, and so I really wanted to use this case to explore how would you advise a client who has commodities trading operations to assess either their FCPA or other uh, anti-corruption law uh, exposure uh, in that part of their business operation? Yeah, great question. And, and just to set the stage a little, uh, on April 6th uh, of 2021, Raymond Kahoot, who was reportedly um, an employee of a Gunvor group, a European energy trading company, pleaded guilty to one kind of conspiracy to launder the proceeds of the bribery scheme. Again, money laundering, not strictly FCPA, uh, laundering bribes that were paid to um, Petro-Ecuador officials. Um, so exactly what we were talking about earlier, Tom, which is money laundering involving South American state oil companies. So very interesting. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, for the exact reasons you said, um, if you are involved in commodities trading, especially with extractive commodities like oil, you need to assess your risk and say, am I dealing with a state-owned state owned oil company in a high-risk jurisdiction? 
um, just like you would if you were trying to get a license to to explore for oil, um, or if you were trying to sell uh, oil rigs to that state-owned oil company. You are in that risk area because you are dealing with what is most likely an instrumentality of a foreign government. Um, for sure, DOJ and SEC have taken that position, and I think it's, in, you know, depending on the facts, a very defensible position um, to do as well. So you need to apply the same type of compliance um, risk analysis and procedures um, for commodities trading with a, a, a state-owned oil company, just as you would if you were trying to sell something to it or get a license from it. And so um, to start out with, I mean, one of the obvious things, third-party risk. You know, just like in, in many of these cases, um, it's no different. What we see in a lot of these cases is the use of third-party consultants and other third-party intermediaries to pay bribes to officials of the um, national oil companies, either to win the, the contracts for the commodities, or often sometimes we see it as um, paying for information to bid rig. Um, in other words, instead of you know necessarily paying the money directly as a bribe to get it, you got to pay a bribe to get the information so you can be the most competitive and win it. Um, so you need to look into into third-party risk and treat it like you would any other uh, instrumentality of a foreign government that you're trying to do business with. You know, a couple other things I think to to look at would be, um, uh, you know, do you have unusually low rates? I mean, are you getting a particularly good deal here? You know, is there something else about the the contract itself or the deal itself? You know, do we get a, just an amazing deal on these this oil this time? You know, it's just below market. Uh, rate that we're getting, we're going to make more. That might signal some kind of um, uh, something wrong with the uh, with the uh, deal itself, in addition to you know, unexplained third parties or things like that. So I think the from from my perspective, commodities trading companies should look into these transactions just like they would any others um, as a high high risk. I think that one other thing I would add, Tom, and I'm curious to get your your thoughts on this is um not. If you're also moving commodities, um, you have to think about the exact thing, same things we talk about logistics. Um, you know, if you're moving those commodities across borders, you may also have issues with customs brokers and things like that. And now, uh, because exactly as you said, the CFTC is getting involved in the foreign bribery arena. Um, you know, to the extent that any bribes paid in connection with a commodity. Um, is involved, you're also going to have CFTC compliance issues as well. and need to, to, to really make sure that you're not only thinking about DOJ, FCPA compliance, but CFTC commodities compliance as well. Um, you know, it, it was always the case that when um, a company would do a self-disclosure to DOJ, a publicly traded company um, would do a self-disclosure to DOJ um, on an FCPA issue, uh, there would be an expectation that there would be a parallel self-disclosure to SEC. If the bribery, alleged bribery scheme or the suspected bribery scheme involves a commodity, um, there's now essentially the same expectation that it will also be disclosed to the CFTC. So much more, when you're in the commodities business, it's a much more complicated um, landscape than it was years ago. And I'm wondering, Tom, did I miss any, any advice that you would give to a commodities company? Well, the only thing uh, I would say is I had to look at that uh, transportation issue once for an energy company. And... Um, it's not simply getting the product into port and dealing with customs. 
every port has um, a port captain, and that port captain is a foreign government official. Uh, and then every port has individual port pilots, and those port who, who pilot the ship into port. Uh, the best example is the Houston Ship Channel, which uh, or or any any port, Port of San Francisco, Port of New York, any port uh, outside the United States uh, who have individual expertise in piloting through the uh, narrows of a of a local port. Those are both foreign government officials. Uh, then, of course, you have the inspectors who come on board. You have environmental inspectors. You have uh, uh, other uh, inspectors who are looking at different issues relating to assessing whether uh, ships are seaworthy. Uh, that Those are also foreign government officials. I think at one point, other than the customs officials, which uh, we all recognize, I thought I identified eight different types of uh, foreign government officials that were involved in getting uh, a energy oil commodity into a port and lightering that uh, fuel or offloading that fuel as well. So uh, just a government touch point everywhere uh, that's not on the high seas, literally. So um, uh, I really uh, thought that that was an area that, that should be assessed for FCPA risk and put in a full risk management programs. So, uh, but this, um, uh, the commodities trading, I, I really have seen this as an area that was, is ripe for this type of investigation and enforcement action when appropriate. And frankly, I, under this administration, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see uh, sort of uh, not renewed because it really hasn't been much to the fore, but uh, a new vigor around this, James. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Uh, very complicated industry, and uh, you're right, a lot of government touch points, and so that always creates the FCPA risk. Well, James, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time for this episode. We're, we're going to link to the uh, April version of the uh, Anti-Corruption Interna- International Anti-Corruption Newsletter, and I can't look forward or look forward to seeing what uh, May and June might bring us. Thanks, Tom. Look forward to coming back. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you're interested in history, specifically the Greek and Roman period, I hope you will check out the special podcast series Richard Lummis and I are running on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. We're taking a look at Plutarch's lives and bringing it forward for leadership lessons for the 21st century. A fascinating series on one of the seminal biography and textbooks of history. If you're interested in history, biography, Greeks or Romans, I know you'll enjoy it. Please check it out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.